you would please turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. Uh, This is one of my favorite Old Testament texts because it really speaks in so many ways of what it uh, means to live a life of faith. And that means whereby we are able to live a life of faith. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word this morning? I'm going to read various texts, starting in the first chapter into the second, and then ending with the end of three. Let's hear the Word of the Lord. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear, or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. And then on over to the second chapter and the fourth verse. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. And then on over to the third chapter, starting with verse 17, down through the end, 16, down through the end of the chapter. I hear in my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. The fig trees should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the products of the olive fell. And the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the herd, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me to tread on high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Please be seated. Let's go to prayer. I would ask you to pray for me as I preach this text. And for yourselves as you sit in the proclamation of God's word. Let's pray. And God and Heavenly Father, how we ask for your grace. And that hearts that are here would not be hardened in unbelief. That uh, people who are here would not have hearts that are discouraged, who would not be encouraged. We pray, O oh God, that you wouldn't be with us. And pray that you bless me as I preach. O oh God, help me to do so with the unction of your spirit. And pray, O oh God, that you would be with your people. We pray that you would meet the needs of the congregation. And we again would pray, if any are here outside of faith, that you would grant salvation to them. O oh God, thank you for this. Be with us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. This next Thursday, you will celebrate yet again another Thanksgiving Day. Uh, George Washington, in 1789, proclaimed November the 26th, the first official Thanksgiving in this country. And uh, what are we thankful for? And who do we give thanks to? I was at a meeting of the Synod one time, the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, And a man was preaching, and he had been with his sister. And he said his sister gave thanks before the meal. And he said she thanked the sun, 
She thanked the earth. She thanked the rain. She thanked just about everybody but God. She gave no thanks to the God of all creation. And so as we meet together this Thursday, historically, we need to remember historically that it is a day of thanksgiving to God for his goodness, for his mercies, for his provision. Question. Does there ever come a time in the life of the believer when they have no real reason to give thanksgiving to God, that the life is in such a mess that they really have the right not to give thanksgiving to God at all because they're in such a very, very desperate way. Do the burdens of this life, the heartaches that you have, the disappointments that you have, the sicknesses that you have ever overwhelm you so much that you just can't find it within you to give thanks to God? Charles read earlier today from the book of Philippians. The Apostle Paul is in prison for preaching the gospel. And yet the Apostle Paul gave thanksgiving to God in the midst of that misery. This Old Testament prophet, Habakkuk, is living in a time when the southern kingdom is about to fall. He was taken over by Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, in 586 B.C. Habakkuk learns two things in this today. He has a complaint that he takes to God about the ungodliness that he sees around him. And then he has a concern when he finds out what God is going to do to the nation of Israel. And yet at the end of this section of this prophecy, the last chapter, he gives thanks to God. What is the secret? What is the mystery Behind being able to thank God in sincerity, not simply to say the words, not simply to go through the motions, but in fact, in reality, give thanksgiving to God. Well, the answer is found in Philipp in um, uh, Habakkuk 2 and verse 4. That's a secret to living the Christian life and doing so in such a manner as it is pleasing to God. And as we recognize that this truth that is revealed here in 2-4, the just shall live by faith, that that's how we live our lives day in and day out, believing and trusting in God. But have us see this this morning. Because the blessings of salvation, and he mentions that in the text, the God of my salvation, because the blessings of salvation are ours always and the benefits are forever. Not just today, not just tomorrow, but for all eternity because we have those and we have a right or a privilege or responsibility, if you will, to give thanks to God no matter what circumstances we may be facing. Now, three things this morning from this text, the desire to worship God. And what, Paul, what, what um, Habakkuk's doing here at the end of this is worshiping God. He's praising God. Uh, to praise God is worship. So then, again, the three things, the desire to worship God is repressed by lawlessness. The second thing, uh, the desire to worship God will be challenged by fear. 
And then finally, the desire to worship God is charged by faith. In the first place, then, the desire to worship God is repressed by lawlessness. Israel belonged to God. They were his people. And uh, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 7, verses 6 through 9, we read this. This is the last book in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. If you are a holy people to the Lord your God, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you or chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples, but it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out of the, uh, with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. In the New Testament, Romans chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. If there was any race of people that should have been those who worshiped God no matter what, it was the Israelites. Now, we know the nation of Israel had within it, it contained the church. What is the church? Those of faith. Paul tells us in the New Testament, not all of Israel are truly of Israel. In other words, just because you're an ethnic Jew does not mean that you are a descendant of Abraham. But the true descendants of Abraham are those of faith, whether Jew or Gentile. Those who have embraced the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who believe in him as their God and Savior. That's the true church. That's the true Israel. And so here in the Old Testament, they had the special privilege the people of Israel did. And they were God's chosen people. They had priests. They had the law given to them. They had the temple. They had all these privileges that were theirs that God gave to them, which were pictures and shadows of the reality to come one day in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here, this Old Testament prophet is addressing people that have preachers. They have prophets. They have instructors. They have teachers. These people are not ignorant of the things of God. So again, if any group of people should have been strict about obedience to God, because they know His goodness, they know His grace, they know His kindness. You know, we see here, as I read just a moment ago, what is going on in the nation of Israel. There's lawlessness. There's greed. There's injustice. And the writer says, the law is paralyzed. So they're living as if they had never heard of God. They're living as if they had never heard a prophet. They're living as if they had never received the law at all. They're living as if they do not know how to live in such a way as to please God. They're ignoring it. And there is this. There is no desire on the part of anyone to worship God who is dwelling in lawlessness. No desire whatsoever. Because what you have to do if you're going to worship God is admit that your lawlessness is an offense to him. And that's what these people were going to have to repent if they were going to worship God. And so this lawlessness that was a part of their lives repressed uh, any desire to worship God at all. As a matter of fact, I would say it took it completely away. These people are not involved in worshiping God. They're involved in worshiping themselves. themselves. They have their wants, and come what may, they're going to get those wants fulfilled. 
And there is this presentation of the poor that have no help. And they are being abused by those in power. And there's nothing that they can do. And the prophet is burdened by this. It's like today. Uh, if a minister has a congregation, and the congregation is filled with people who are practicing all kind of lawlessness, it, it burdens the heart of the pastor. At least it should burden the heart of the pastor if that type of thing is going on. And to learn of something that is going on in the life of even just one individual that is a serious sin that needs to be dealt with, it is heartbreaking. So here, the, the prophet here is burdened by how he sees these people living. And I think he is so for one reason. For one thing, he cares about God and God's name and God's honor. And these ungodly people are dishonoring the Lord. It is interesting in our own day and age, we have to be so careful about what we say so we don't offend anybody. Nobody cares if you take the Lord's name in vain. Nobody. Christians even gotten to the point that they accept it. Expect it. We hear it in movies. We see it on the television. You're on the television. Why is that? Why is that? If there's ever or should ever be a concern for the words we speak, it should be what we say about God. And it should be what we say about Jesus Christ. And you people say Christ all the time, not in a reverent way, but as a curse. You people lose uh, the Lord's name in vain all the time. It's commonplace. And yet it's become pretty much accepted. But we cannot say anything to hurt somebody's feelings. And that's the unforgivable sin in our own day and age. And as Christians, it should burden us when we see God's name, God's character in any way being abused or God being blasphemed in any way. It should bother us as believers just as the prophet was bothered by the ungodliness that he saw all around him. But no shame. No shame whatsoever and no grief whatsoever. Well, the prophet here brings this before the Lord. He's concerned about it. Well, God tells him that. I didn't read these verses. God tells him, I'm paying attention. The prophet says, why don't you do something? You know, you're sovereign over everything. Uh, you control everything. Nothing is outside of your control. Here are these people that you've chosen for yourself. You dwell among them. You are worshipped here among them. And they're living like they hate you. And you're not doing anything about it. And God says, oh, I'm going to do something. He just talks to this prophet. I'm paying attention, he says to Habakkuk. And I'm going to do something. And he says this. Again, I did not read the verse. I'm going to do something you wouldn't believe if you heard it. The Chaldeans. Those ruthless people who are swift and ride swift horses, who throw nets over people and capture them, who put hooks through them and carry them off into captivity. Those people that are feared, those people that are dreaded, those people are going to come and take over the city. Those people are going to destroy the temple. Those people are going to abuse women. Those people are going to murder men. Those people are going to kidnap children and take them away with them to captivity. That's what's going to happen. And so the burden that Habakkuk had over the honor of God being uh, blasphemed now has this puzzlement. How can you use a people more wicked than we and bring them against us? We're bad, he's thinking. We ain't as bad as they are. We're not that bad. 
So how in the world can you do this to bring an ungodly people that don't know you at all, that have no concern for you at all, that, as a matter of fact, they're idolaters? How can you use them to come and bring them against us and so that we are punished by an ungodly group of people? I love this section of the Scriptures. Habakkuk knows God to be just. He knows God to be righteous. And he says this, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me, and I will answer concerning my complaints. He is depending upon his understanding of God's holiness, God's righteousness, God's justice, and to answer back to God whenever God says, I'm going to do this, I'm going to bring these wicked people back to say, well, that's, that's out of your character. How can you approve of these people? They're terribly, terribly wicked. How can you do how can you let this happen to your covenant people? And this answer comes from the Lord in chapter two and verse four. As for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. But the justified by faith shall live by faith. This is the condition of the natural man. This is the condition of those who are outside of fellowship with God. Dr. Robertson, in his comment, one of my professors from seminary, in his commentary on the book of Habakkuk, said that uh, they were so full of themselves and so full of uh, their pride and arrogance, they had no room for God in their lives at all, not recognizing that they needed God even. They were self-made. They did what they wanted to do. No one could stop them. They were arrogant people. And we remember from Scripture, the Lord is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. These people know what's right. It's not like they don't, they've never been taught. They were instructed throughout the history of the Old Testament church what was right and how to live in such a way as to please God. They shouldn't be surprised that this is going to happen. They should have expected this was going to happen. But again, the prophet here is perplexed as to how a holy God can do this using an ungodly people, more wicked than they, to bring judgment against them. The righteous shall live by faith. Now notice in chapter 3 and verse 16, uh, these words, I hear in my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me. And so here then, the desire to worship God can be challenged by fear. This prophet is not going to escape the judgment. He's not going to escape the trial. He's not going to escape the heartache and the misery that's going to happen to God's people. And so he says it very well here. This is his reaction to it. My bones trembled. My lips quivered at the sound. He's terrified. He's terrified. And the way this prophecy is written, it is as he was at present as these things were happening. It's not like he sees it in a vision in the future, but it's like he's in the midst of it. God revealed this to him. It's like he's there. It's like he can hear the screams. He can see the blood. He can All these things that are going to happen to the people of God. He sees and witnesses these events. And it terrifies him. And he's one who is very shaken as you read this again. I, my bones trembled, my lips quivered at the sound, rottenness entered my bones, my legs trembled beneath me. He cannot stand up. He is so overwhelmed by fear. 
he is unable to stand up. Habakkuk is a faithful man. Wouldn't we think that a faithful man would escape any type of suffering? We tend to think that way. Well, I shouldn't experience this. I'm a Christian. I shouldn't go through this. I'm a believer. God shouldn't deal with me in this fashion. I've been faithful to him. Believers do not escape suffering in this life. They don't. As a matter of fact, we saw not very long ago some Christians that were killed because they were Christians. It was recorded and put on social media. These believers were made to kneel down, kneel down, and they were killed because they served Christ. We do not escape, Christians do not escape the sufferings in this world. And so here, even in the book of Esther, which is a very interesting book, her uncle is a man named Mordecai, trying to get Esther to go to the king because she's in his harem. And has been word given that the Jews are to be killed, all of them. Anybody can pick up a sword and kill these Israelites. And Mordecai is trying to get her to go to the king to spare them. And Mordecai says this to her. Do not think to yourself in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. Daniel and his three friends, you know, the book of Daniel, they were taken away into captivity. They were about 14 years old because they were 14 when they entered into the king's service for their training. They were taken away. They were faithful young men, and yet they were taken away. Habakkuk will feel the pain of the trial that's coming. He'll experience it. He will hurt. He will suffer. Church history, if you are aware of some of church history, you know uh, the the, uh, Huguenots were reformed French uh, people in France, and they suffered severely persecution. The Covenanters in Scotland suffered severely uh, being put to death, both in France and in Scotland, because of their faith. We do not escape, Christians do not escape the sufferings in this life. And it's foolish to think that we will. It simply is not biblical to think that just because I'm a Christian, I'm not going to get cancer. I'm not going to have financial problems. I'm not going to have marriage problems. None of these things are going to happen to me because I'm a Christian. It's not true. It is simply not true. Well, then how then do we deal with it? If we go to the doctor and the doctor says, you've got cancer, and it doesn't look very good for you at all. Or you get word uh, your wife has decided she does not want to be married to you anymore and she's leaving you. Or this, you're going to have to declare bankruptcy. Or this, your portfolio is worth nothing now. You think of the people that invested in Enron? A lady lost $2 million overnight. All of her money was at Enron. It was worthless. The stock was worthless overnight. She said she didn't know what she was going to do. Believers suffer in this life, not because of anything they've done necessarily at all. Uh, I told the Sunday school class this. So they'll have to bear with me. I'll tell it again. Um, there was a young man from Baton Rouge who went to New Orleans for a friend's birthday. And they drank a bit too much. And they drove home from New Orleans back to Baton Rouge. It's not very far. 
The driver was going 70 miles an hour through a neighborhood, lost control, hit a tree, and the fellow got killed behind him. It was his birthday. Well, he killed somebody. When he went before the judge, the judge said to him, I understand. I understand. You're not a wicked man. You're not a bad guy. He told him about his experience when he graduated from law school. He went to New Orleans again. They drank a bit too much. They came back to Baton Rouge, hit some ice on the road, lost control, and went off onto the shoulder. After they were there for a while, another car came in. It had a crash. The judge said this, I understand, but you've got to go to prison. The difference in the two cases, nobody died in the first case. The second case, somebody did die, and they had to go to prison. This man, this young man, is a Christian. And now he's suffering for something he did. Often, we haven't done anything, per se, to cause the afflictions that we have. In the book of Hebrews, in the 12th chapter, we read that we suffer so that we may share in God's holiness. That's why God puts us through trials. Trust me, he says. Trust me. So then, and the last thing is, the desire to worship God is charged by faith. As for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the just shall live by faith. And listen to what he says at the end of this. So the fig, fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines. The produce of the olive fell. And the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. He goes from losing the luxuries, the wine, uh, the olive, uh, the finer things of life, to losing the necessities, the cattle, the things that we need to live day in and day out. He loses all of these things. And yet he says this, beginning in this uh, next portion of the verse, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. What's happened? What you see in these verses, the end of this book, is someone who is living by trust and faith in God. That's what's happening here. He believes the Lord. A great verse that you should memorize and live by, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Not partially. Not kind of, but trust the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. Why? Because you are nearsighted and don't understand the things that God understands. You simply don't. Lean not to your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. We read in the scriptures. So can we say that this young man who is now in prison, that God's hand is upon him? Absolutely we can Absolutely we can. God has not abandoned him. Even though he sinned, even though something horrible happened, God has not abandoned this young man. He is with him. And so what he says here, this great God is the Lord of my strength. He is the God of my salvation. Here we come into this, that God has redeemed his people through Christ. Now, Habakkuk didn't know Christ. He had not been born. But he didn't understand this, that God was the source of his salvation. 
that God was going to be with him no matter what he was facing. God would be with him. And he could say, he is the God of my salvation. He is the God who is going to be with me in this world and in the next. They believed in life after death in the Old Testament. And so we in the New Testament, how much more should we trust God? Who are Christians today? who recognized the God of my salvation is the God who gave his son upon the cross of Calvary to take my sins upon himself, the condemnation that I deserve, uh, the punishment that I deserve, placed upon him so that I might be righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. Not that I'm free from sin, but I'm free from condemnation because of who Christ is and what Christ has done for me. Uh, If you will indulge me just a moment, I want to go over to the book of Isaiah. Here described our great God. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth that he who sits above the circle of the earth and his inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in? He brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth emptiness. To whom you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these things, who brings them all out by number. Hear this description of God in Isaiah. Who is like God? No one. Who can do what God has done? No one. Who can redeem a people for himself? No one but God. And so this Old Testament prophet here uh, thinks about these things and recognizes this. And he says, he lifts me up. He calls me to tread on high places. He causes me to walk like the deer. How? How do we have confidence to praise God always when we're told the worst possible thing? Your child's going to die. Sorry. But that's just the way it's going to be. That's, we can't do anything. How can we then come back and say, I praise God. I rejoice in the God of my salvation because of that one word, salvation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And Habakkuk knows God's going to be with me. He's going to strengthen me. He's going to enable me to deal with whatever comes so that I will not reject him. So that I will not abandon him because he will not abandon me. So the prophet has this great strength, not because of his own doing, not because of his own skills or whatever, but because God is with him. He takes joy in the God of his salvation. The ultimate gratitude we will have to God will only be known when we reach glory. Does anyone know where the love of God goes when the waves turn the minutes to hours? You all know this. The searchers all say they had made Whitefish Bay if they had put 15 more miles ahead. A few more miles behind. They might have split up. They might have capsized. They may have broke deep and took water. And all that remains is the faces of the wives 
and the sons and the daughters. That's a song written by Gordon Lightfoot back in 1976 about a ship that sank on Lake Superior. Everybody died. 29 men all died. The biggest ship ever to sink on the Great Lakes, the Edmund Fitzgerald. All that's left, he says, are the faces of the wives and the sons and the daughters. That's not true if you're a Christian. There's no hope in that language. No hope at all. All that's left, we could say, is the reality of seeing them again one day. Is the reality of knowing they're with Christ in glory. That's what's left. Not just an emptiness. Not just a sadness. But the reality of our God who strengthens us and is with us and enables us to bear up in times of great difficulty as we trust Him. Do you know Christ? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ this morning? Are you one who has that hope within you? That no matter what you face, God is with you. No matter what you face, God will be with you and bear you up through it. No matter what you deal with, even in the face of death itself, you can have this assurance. I will be in glory with Christ today. That's the Christian. If you don't know him, I would urge you to come to him. To embrace him as your Lord and your Savior. All that's left is a great future. Let's pray.